Canto 17 of the Purgatory contains the actual midpoint of the whole Divine Comedy. There are 14,233 lines in the Divine Comedy, so in line 7,116, halfway through that line, is the actual midpoint of the comedy. And no prizes for guessing what word Dante has at that exact midpoint, amor, love. The word that's at the heart of the comedy, on which the comedy turns, that the comedy is all about, um, you get the point. But I also like the way that Dante plays with these structures, because at the same time as building structure, almost code formularies into the Divine Comedy, He's constantly undoing them as well and moving us beyond understandings which might be formulated in doctrines or formulated in philosophies and encouraging us to move, use them, but to use them to deepen our participation in reality itself, in love itself, in divine itself. And Therefore, Purgatory 17 um, is a good one to have right at the heart of the comedy because it does precisely this. It both presents us with quite an extensive talk, actually, by Virgil about the nature of love, but it has a slightly lecturing quality, um, and Dante is inviting us to listen and to learn for sure, but to use it as a springboard to delve more deeply into this great unfolding which is now exactly at the midpoint of. The canto begins, if you remember, with them emerging from this dark impenetrable cloud which has surrounded the wrathful. Um, if you remember Marco said that he needs to stay behind so that he doesn't see the angel which would be intolerable for him. But Dante and Virgil carry on and Dante describes, interestingly, he invites us to share in the experience of merging from the cloud. He says, if you've ever had the experience of being on a mountain when there's been a dense mist and the mist starts to thin and eventually you see the thin, pale disk of the sun re-emerging until you step out into the fullness of the light once more. He says that's what it was like coming out of the clouds that blind the wrathful. Um, but of course in offering that illusion he's asking us to share directly in the experience which he himself is having at this point of Mount Purgatory. So this theme of the ultimate goal of being participating in life itself is given to us even in the metaphors when he says, have you ever had the experience when? You know, rather than saying we stepped out of the clouds and it was like um, drawing us in more deeply is the opening feel of this canto and becomes, I think, the main goal of the canto as well. If the last canto had been about establishing that we are in fact free to share in the life of the universe, we're not robots, it's not all fated, there is such a thing as free will meaning the capacity we have to, over time, deliberately work at aligning ourselves with the 
life that runs through all things, that kind of will. Um, if that is so, then now this canto asks, so what is that alignment about? What is it like to share and participate in what we can choose to do so? It's actually set at the end of the second day of their time on Mount Purgatory. As they come out of the dark clouds, they see the last light of the sun as it slips below the horizons. It's dark in the valley beneath. There's still light on the mountains up above them. And a few stars are beginning to come out. Um, there's a sense of shortness of time. Um, they must find their resting place for the night. Um, and they push on. And Dante has three visions. They echo what had happened previously when they'd emerged from the lessons of the terraces below. He's less scared of the visions this time. There's a much more powerful sense that he's actively participating in them. And in fact, he also gives us a gloss on what visions are. He says it very beautifully, of course, that as the light of the sun is falling at the end of the day, so he realises that there's an inner light that can rise in us. And it's a light which gives us fantasies, imaginative insights, intuitions. He says it may be of God directly, um, it may be from the heavens. Um, by that, I take him to mean that sometimes we're connected, aligned completely with the divine. But at other times we're aligned with the other powers and principalities, the other life forces um, that, because of free will, freely move around the cosmos as well. And they can bring a kind of lesser light um, into our minds. Um, they may be still of the divine, they may not be. So there's a kind of discernment that's necessary here when you have these intuitions, these imaginative insights. Um, that kind of breakdown between what's directly of God and what might be a reflection of the divine, which may be more or less good, um, that's going to be a theme of the canto. But at the moment, Dante just says, I had a light arise inside me, and it gave me three visions. They feature three individuals from myth and history who suffered from sinful wrath. Remember, we've already had the indication that there's a kind of righteous anger. So these three images that arise in Dante's mind now, given to him from myth and history, but you might say understood aright by him now, which is why he has them at this point. Um, they are first of all a vision of Procne. Um, do you remember we'd met her before? Um, she had in a fit of jealousy, fed her son to her husband. Um, her husband had turned on her and she'd been turned into a nightingale by the gods as a kind of final act of mercy. Um, so her act is wrath um, that was sinful, that was out of control in the killing of her innocent son. The second image that comes by, they come by quite quickly, um, is an image of Haman. Now he is a figure from the Bible. He wanted to kill Mordecai in the book of Esther in the, old, in the Hebrew Bible, um, but Esther had um, pleaded to the king 
and instead the means that Haman had devised for Mordecai to die were turned on Haman himself. So he is an image of anger that goes against another and rebounds on yourself. Um, in the Divine Comedy here, uh, Dante says that Haman was crucified. Um, I think in the Hebrew Bible he's actually hung, um, but nonetheless you get the point about that kind of wrathful anger that Dante now understands. And then the third figure um, is a figure from Virgil's Aeneas. Um, she is Amatar, and um, her wrathful anger got out of control because when she thought her son wasn't going to marry the figure that she desired, she killed herself. So it's just kind of sort of futile, um, bad suicide. You know, we've had quite a range of different kinds of suicidal act. Well, this one is just completely useless and wasteful. Um, it didn't change anything because it turns out that her son married the person the gods had decreed anyway um, in the Aeneas. Um, so, uh, which was actually Aeneas in the Aeneid. Um, so anyway, these three visions, Procne, Haman and Amatar, fly speedily past Dante now as he has the insight um, into their wrathful anger. And just by way of contrast, he's going to hear the words, blessed are the peacemakers, um, as they move that little bit further on. Again, another beatitude like they'd heard before. Um, and once more, my sense is that he hears this because he richly understands it. And the point about the peacemakers, as it were, he realises, is not that they're morally good, um, although they might be. It's more that if you follow that path, the path of peace, connection, um, rather than the path of wrath and destruction, um, you see more, you participate more in life, your eyes open more, as indeed is happening even now, as they leave the cloud and the blindness of the wrathful and start to see the, the evening light once more. And also, of course, the light of the visions that Dante has just seen rising inside of him. The play on light continues because Dante is drawn out of his inner light, these visions, by another light. And this one is an external light, it's brighter than the sun, um, it's another angel that appears. Dante says that the angel hid his face in his radiance. Um, Dante couldn't look into the angel's face, but he's less frightened this time. Um, he's sort of prepared. Um, he's more able to stay with the experience of participating in the angelic radiance, um, reflecting the divine. And the angel um, immediately tells them that they're going the right way. This is the direction towards the steps for the fourth staircase. The angel is not like the wrathful, who wouldn't give you what you want, even if you asked. Um, this angel gives Dante and Virgil what they need even before they ask, because the angel knows. And they climb the stairs. But as the sun's light, now dominating the scene, starts to disappear, Dante notices that it gets harder and harder to climb the stairs. Um, you'll remember that um, you can't move on in purgatory when you don't have the divine light, the sun's light to fire and guide your way. Um, 
but there's a sense that something else is going on here. Um, they're approaching a new terrace, and Dante wonders to Virgil, you know, why uh, can I hardly move? Um, it's like he's realising there's more going on here than just um, the disappearance of the day's light. And they sit down right at the top of the staircase, just before the fourth terrace, and Virgil explains um, that this is because this terrace is going to be where the slothful work through what has trapped them in life. And so much as they had done at the beginning of the previous terraces, they too are now participating in this state. And it's immediately indicated something about the nature of this state, because Dante says to Virgil that don't stop talking just because we have to stay still. Um, and that's the tension, I think, that um, the slothful um, condition of mind um, suffers from. But on the one hand, it wants to know more. It wants to push on in life. It wants to share more, participate more in this divine reality. And yet it just hasn't got the energy. It hasn't got the will. Um, it can't ride the love that might take it in that direction. And understanding how that comes about is the crucial task for this terrace, although we're not actually going to get there until the next canto. What happens, though, is very fascinating, because Virgil gives a talk to Dante about the nature of, well, initially sloth that can't ride the love that moves the sun and other stars, that being its failing. But he then extends that to show that at the end of the day, love is all that there is pulsing through the cosmos and all the things that trap human beings, the things that keep them going around the terraces of purgatory before they can be released into heaven, are failures of one sort or another to be able to engage with that love aright, to be able to participate, align yourself with it. What's doubly interesting is that Virgil gives an account of this insight using the church's traditional teachings about the seven deadly sins. It's really interesting that well, Virgil knows enough about this to discourse on it now, I think indicating how Virgil is beginning to really develop quite a substantial feel for these things as he himself has his purgatorial experience. But it's also interesting that Dante, the poet, makes us feel that there's another kind of in set of insights that's being overlaid on this traditional teaching. Because when we hear Virgil explain how particularly the, the three terraces we've already encountered work according to the old schema, it doesn't really fit quite right. And that makes us realise that Dante the poet is introducing another element, which is the teaching of Aristotle. Remember that at this equivalent point in the Inferno, um, Virgil and Dante had a discussion about how um, Aristotle's insights can illuminate the structure of hell to a degree, because it didn't quite work out like that, if you remember. But it was a kind of a first attempt to understand what they were going to see. Um, so Dante is bringing Aristotle as a kind of overlay onto the traditional church teaching here. 
but it too doesn't quite fully grasp what they actually encounter. So I think you have a sort of push to a third level of engagement, which is the direct knowledge and awareness, the direct participation of these things, which they get when they actually traverse the terraces. To put it another way, it's kind of saying traditional teaching, innovative teaching, isn't really enough, though it can help. What you need to do is to directly undergo and know these things in your life, to take them in, to discern them, to incorporate them into your very being, and it's then that the cosmos opens up, it expands, you become capable of the divine. You know, that is what it is to know yourself as a free, fully loving human being. Just being told could never be enough. So you've got a wonderful, I think, textured awareness of what the Divine Comedy itself is about. Here, right at the heart of the Divine Comedy is a text. It is written as a poem. It's a story about a set of you know, visionary experiences that completely get into Dante's life, um, because that's what it takes. Um, and at the same time, it's reforming, revising, using church teachings, new teachings like Aristotle's coming into Europe at this point, um, as sort of springboards, as means of discernment, but never feeling um, ashamed to leave them behind in order to push on to the direct awareness itself. Nonetheless, Virgil's talk is really interesting, and it comprises of three sort of big points. Um, he says, you know, love is really what shapes all things, but the goal of loving can be wrong, or the measure of loving can be wrong. So he says that in the purgatory terraces that have already been traversed by them, they'd seen what happens when the goal of loving is wrong. So for example, that would understand pride as loving yourself rather than loving life itself. Um, and they're about to come to the terraces where the measure of love is wrong. So this is either it's insufficient, the power of love, which is what they're about to experience with sloth, um, or um, the measure of love can be excessive, it can be too much. Um, we'll come to that, but the obvious one that comes to mind there is lust, um, that desires another person, another person's body, um, too passionately, and so traps the soul as well. So the first point that Virgil makes is that the goal of loving can be wrong, like pride that loves itself, or the measure of loving can be wrong either. It can be insufficient or excessive, which they're about to see with sloth. The second point he makes is that there's two kinds of love in the cosmos. One is what he calls a natural kind, and one is a rational or a mental kind, one that we sort of elect to follow or choose. Um, this had been hinted at in the remarks made by Marco, because if you remember, he had said that we're born like innocent children that just love, take delight in everything we see. Um, they're going to return to that kind of love and what, how it works a bit more in the next canto. But for now, they're going to focus on this rational, chosen, mental kind of love, the love which we can kind of guide, that our free will has some sort of engagement with. Um, and it's this kind of love that we must work on in life because we're able to do so and we can 
cultivate it, direct it aright, to lead to more, not to less, Virgil says. So that's his sort of second big point, natural love, mental love, following the goal of loving or the measure of loving. The third big point he makes is that you can't actually hate yourself or hate God. Now that seems quite a striking thing to say because it feels like we've met loads of people that both hate themselves and hate God. But what Virgil is actually illuminating now, um, which actually is a very old doctrine, it's in Plato, Socrates said as much, that it's not a hate of self or God that really is the problem. It's rather an ignorance about yourself or God. And that ignorance leads to hate, pride, jealousy, wrath, all these kind of things. But when people see a right, when they participate and share in things aright, when they know it properly, then the love of yourself, the love of others, the love of God naturally is found to be there. So the way that you correct failures in love is by knowing more, by seeing more, by experiencing more, by participating more, which of course is precisely what the Divine Comedy describes for Dante and invites us to share in ourselves. Um, incidentally, this third remark comes very much right at the midpoint of um, the Divine Comedy, the, the love, the word that's right there. So this is completely underscoring what the Divine Comedy is about. Um, it's about lifting our, the clouds from our sight so that we can see what was always there all along and ride the divine love back to the divine. So it's a very beautiful thing to say right at the heart of the whole journey and it's truthful insofar it goes except that you then reflect on what, say, they'd already experienced in purgatory, and you kind of realise it doesn't quite fit. You know, so for example, the wrathful, like Marco, that we just encountered, um, the big experience that they seemed to have was being blinded by their wrath. Um, how does that fit onto that they got the goal of loving wrong? Um, well, a bit it fits onto that, because in a way they couldn't see the true goal of their loving, and so it kind of got caught up in itself. Um, but it seems to be only a partial insight. Um, you might say the same thing about the proud, remember, down on the first terrace, carrying their big weights. Now, it's true that, in a way, they got the goal of loving wrong because they sort of loved their own gifts, loved themselves, and so that was what was bearing them down. But if you remember, there seemed to be a whole lot more going on there as well, because their burdens, they themselves, were also the portal into the extraordinary riches of divine love and life, um, because we share in that as well, um, distant and strange though that can same, sound and seem. So these insights which Virgil's giving um, offer a kind of schema, so they kind of give us um, a first set of how to orientate ourselves around these things, but they're not quite enough. And Dante, the poet, I think has woven onto that basic schema, Seven Deadly Sins, the Church's teaching, which Virgil is becoming quite fluent with now, the insights of Aristotle. Because Aristotle had said that things like wrath, for example, um, suffer from extremes, and the goal in life is to find the midpoint between the extremes, and then that quality, that emotion, that charge 
can serve you well. It becomes aligned to the deeper love, you might say, that runs through all things. So, for example, righteous anger is somewhere between, on the one hand, not caring at all, but on the other hand, being consumed by wrath. That seems to be much more what the characters like Marco we just encountered seem to be experiencing because Marco has a kind of righteous anger at the world that he lived in and which he expressed as well. He was learning to bring that to the surface and not just be consumed by wrath which had made him blind in life. Um, so Dante is suggesting that on top of the basic teaching comes these new insights, particularly from Aristotle. Um, to my mind, they work with this idea of a new consciousness emerging, um, this sense that there's an evolution of consciousness throughout history, reaching from the ancient Greeks through the emergence of Christianity, now with Dante um, in the medieval period, and I think developing more in our own time. Um, and it's indicated because in a way what Aristotle gave figures like Dante when he appears again in the medieval world is a kind of psychology, a sense of inner life that was going on in the individual, matching the inner life of the cosmos as a whole. Um, and so I think that's why figures like Dante picked it up and used it and applied it to their own times. Um, which is what you see when you have this sense that actually anger is not just sort of good or bad, a rather binary notion. Um, it's about sharing in its energy, but directing that energy aright. Um, and it matches, though, what Virgil has said about, in a way, you know, nothing is wasted in the cosmos. Um, it's just more or less aligned with love, and the task is to become more and more aligned with love. So you see, I hope, some of this sort of quite subtle but really profound weaving of things which leads back to the main point, which is to experience these things, to go into the descent, into the inferno, see, experience all that. And then it's precisely that descent which enables the ascent because you then are able to work with these forces in your own life and in the world around you to take you back towards heavenly realms, this old theme which had been going on all the way through, that the descent and the ascent are actually part and parcel of the same journey. And the canto leaves me wanting to know more directly about all this, partly because Virgil says to Dante in the last line of the canto, I would have you discover more yourself about these things, which of course they're going to because their journey continues. But Virgil himself is saying, look, even though I've given you this talk, and it's true insofar I can see that love fills all things, that it's about the goal and the measure of loving that counts. It's about the natural love and the mental or chosen way that we try and align with that love that counts. It's about our ignorance, really, not the hate, envy, pride that can take us away from this loving. Even those things are true, he's saying to Dante, I would have you know them directly for yourself. And so this you know, very beautiful, very rich, reflective canto with love right at the middle of the divine commentary, both literally and metaphorically and spiritually and dynamically, comes to an end.